Welcome to Pot to Popular, a podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstreaming cannabis. Join along as we learn from the greatest minds in this industry and learn about how cannabis is becoming part of popular culture, health, wellness, and industry. Welcome to today's episode of Pot to Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Matteo. Today, we're joined by CEO of Tilt, Gary Santo. Gary's going to join us today and talk about the growth of Tilt and how they are investing in social equity in a really creative way as New York begins to come online for adult-use cannabis. Welcome, Gary. Thank you, Rosie. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat today. You guys are doing some really exciting things. So you lead one of the most respected MSOs, you know, with global reach. And I want to get listeners up to speed, you know, because Tilt has had, you know, has recalibrated its business a few times. Give us a brief overview of Tilt and tell us why you decided to pivot from finance and pharma into cannabis. Sure. I mean, you know, Tilt started out much in the same way a lot of the, uh, the cannabis companies started out with uh, a lot of big ideas. Uh, to really touch the industry in a lot of different places. Uh, I think over the last 12 months or so, uh, I joined the firm uh, last uh, last July, we were able to really hone that business model down to where we felt the biggest value to not only the company and our shareholders, but really to the in- industry. And that's sort of that B2B supplier. I mean, you always hear people talk about picks and shovels and all those things, but I don't think there's too many companies out there that really touch both the plant and, and the non-plant touching sides of the business to provide the MSOs, the LPs, the brands out there with pretty much a full suite of products, whether it's vaping hardware, whether it's packaging for either their vape or their cannabis products, whether it's actual cannabis infused products themselves, we're able to bring all of those things to bear in the markets that we're in. And it's been pretty successful so far. We have over 700 uh, relationships with brands, MSOs and LPs. Um, you know, we, we've been, we've rolled out about three or four different brand partnerships in this year alone. So it's pretty exciting. It's a different take, honestly, it's, it's a lot different looking than a traditional MSO. Uh, but it's one that we continue to hear positive feedback on. Yeah. And, you know, I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. You know, now that you're at the helm of the company, like, you know, we talked, there have been some pivots. What do you think sets Tilt's current B2B approach apart from the other industry players? Yeah, I think for us, we're not confused about where we want to play. We don't need to be front and center in the spotlight. We're happy to be one step removed to supply all the folks I talked about. So as I look at our pedigree over the years, whether it's on our hardware side, where we've managed very complex supply chains, uh, getting shipments in from China throughout all the different uh, tariff issues, throughout all the different supply chain matters and shipping issues that you hear about, uh, you know, whether it's what we grow, the kind of products that we have and our ability to work with brands, not to take those brands over, but to show them how to bring that brand into a different state and a highly regulated state like Massachusetts or Pennsylvania or even New York at some point. Uh, I think those are the things where we're focused on helping and not becoming the story. Uh, I think that's what makes us uh, quite different there. I think the brands that we've partnered with find it refreshing. Uh, you know, Old Pal is probably one of our strongest advocates along those lines that you know, they almost feel like they're an extension of us. Uh, and that's how we know we're doing the job well when that happens. Right. And, you know, and I, I actually want to talk a little bit more about that, you know, somebody like an old pal. So how does the strategy actually address the most pressing bottlenecks at the stage of industry growth? Because we know supply chain, um, we're having issues even a- across, you know, all industries. So talk to us about how Tilt is helping some of these bottlenecks. Sure. So, I mean, if we learned anything on the hardware side of our business, it's planning is everything. And each year we go through around this time of year, a budget process where we reach out and contact all of the brands and the MSOs and LPs we supply, and we get a sense for what they think their buying pattern is going to be for the year. 
We also then factor in things like Chinese New Year and all the other normal uh, shipping delays that might occur. And that allows us to really plan out the use of our working capital to make sure that we're placing orders at the right time, that we have inventory at the right time, and that product is available. And that's why of all the distributors of C-cell vaping products, uh, we're the only one that has not stocked out at all over the last I think, year and a half. Uh, while all the competitors have. So we've taken that and brought it to bear in cannabis. And what we found there is too often, uh, you know, MSOs will grow what they want to grow when they want to grow it. Then they harvest it and figure out what products to make. We're getting about the business of almost pre-selling our rooms, working with our brands, working with our partners, uh, you know, that we sell to on the wholesale side to understand who needs what and by when, and then being very deliberate about when we plant the rooms, the speed of that harvest cycle, uh, and then understanding when we're going to need to get the packaging in. So it's it's really that measure twice, cut once kind of mentality that we apply. Uh, what makes it really interesting, frankly, is as big as some of the brands are we work with, we do tend to find out that the data they've been using to this point is not what you would expect uh, you know, a retail brand to have. There's sometimes a lack of understanding of the timing of sales, the pattern of sales. So it's it's quite honestly fun to work with folks and actually show them how much stronger their brand could be and how much it could really scale if you pay attention to the data and do that extra planning. Yeah. And also to that point. So, you know, when potential business partners like the MSOs or any of the brands come to you for this brand building support, what do you think the main areas existing brands still need to work on? Right. Some of it could be planning, but also like, are there any new trends that you're seeing that they're, that need, they need to be working on that brands need to be you know taking notice of? Well, I mean, I think, I think the brands are all trying to make sure that they st- stay true to themselves. And that's important for us too. Uh, you know, whatever it is, a major brand, particularly popular to hold on to that category, whether it's in California, whether it's in Oregon, Washington, Colorado, any of those high competitive markets, uh, you know, where price and quality really matter. Uh, we want to make sure that, you know, we work with them to know what is their what is their DNA? Is it literally just price and potency? Because that's sort of one of everybody. Uh, is it a form factor? Is it you know the excipients they use? Whatever that might be. And then our ability to sort of work with these folks to figure out how do you bring that product into potentially a medical only market or maybe a hybrid medical and adult use market. So it's it's being flexible and willing to work together on form factors, on packaging, on what the formulations are, instead of just being a typical contract manufacturer where somebody comes in with their recipe and says, do this. I think that's that's one of the pieces that we found to be really interesting. There are some brands that struggle with that, honestly. You know, they caught lightning in a bottle. Uh, I think it works in the given market, but it might not play elsewhere. So I think people are getting much more intentional with the form factors. They know that as you come from west to east, form factor does matter. Uh, use case does matter. Uh, so I think you'll see more of that as we go along. Yeah. And I think that's like provides like crucial support, right? Because all these brands are, are trying to proliferate all the markets and, and without the support, you know, it's going to be hard for them to do it as they're trying to do this national play, which you guys are a platform for them. And, you know, I want to shift gears a little bit. So you guys have had two major announcements this year so far. One is, of course, you becoming CEO, but also the company's historic partnership with the Shinnecock Indian Nation of New York, um, where you guys are helping build a vertically integrated facility on their tribal territory in the Hamptons, which is very exciting. So I want to talk about how this partnership came to fruition and what was Tilt's initial intention when your team was developing the framework for this initiative? Sure. Uh, we're excited about this. Uh, I think it's one of those, you know, catching lightning in a bottle in itself. Uh, you know, we, we've been looking at trying to get into New York. 
I think everybody knows how how great the New York market is likely to be uh, in the months. Anything five or eight billion dollar market, it's going to be enormous. Exactly, exactly. So uh, we're we were looking for a way to get in, but all the different roads to entry were incredibly expensive uh, and hard to justify. You know, spending millions upon millions of dollars just to get in and have the right to spend more money to actually become functional. So uh, an investor introduced us to Connor Green. Connor Green uh, works closely with a number of Native American tribes. Uh, in looking at how to bring cannabis to their sovereign land. Um, what impressed us uh, when we spoke with them was how deliberate and thoughtful they were in thinking through the regulations. It wasn't just about let's prop up a dispensary and do a bunch of wholesale and see what happens. It was crafting the regulations. It was working with the states. So we found out they've been working with the Shinnecock Nation. Uh, I grew up out in that area uh, when I was a young one. And you know, remember the Shinnecock Nation and, and going out to their, their lands and you know, thought the location was fantastic, did not realize they were even interested in cannabis. And as we met with the council and met with the leadership there, we were impressed by how thoughtful and diligent they've been working at it since I think 2015 or 2016, crafting regulations on the reservation land that match or at least mirror what New York State is trying to do. So they understood the larger picture. Uh, and it became pretty clear that I think the limiting factor and why other MSOs probably passed on this you get one dispensary right now and it's on the sovereign land. Uh, so it's out there in Southampton, which I still think is a great location. But I think other MSOs who look at New York are looking for a more broader retail footprint. For us, because we like that B2B wholesale approach, it only made sense that we would come in and provide the know-how, provide some of the financing, provide the management skills, uh, and to be able to build a true vertically integrated, self-sustaining ecosystem for their economy that can help drive value in the near term and then in the years to come. So it checked a huge box for us on doing good and being able to give back to the community. I think, you know, we were very intentional on wanting to set a standard for how social equity could work uh, and show that it's much more than just, you know, doing expungement. It's much more than just giving a few dollars or, or doing some weekend projects. It's about being really intentional. And I'm fortunate to have a board that allowed us to do this. It meant giving a substantial amount of the economics to the nation, and we're proud of that. They will have that on day one. They will have that, you know, when and if our contracts do expire. So uh, we're excited about it. Uh, we're excited to get, you know, shovels going and get the, uh, the facility built and get operational by the end of next year. You know, I want to dig into that a little more. You know, uh, the strategy is different in many ways from other MSOs um, because unlike many businesses, partnerships with team like the MSOs and smaller brands, the facility on the Shinnecock Nation will be wholly owned and regulated by them. So what's the long-term financial and social impact of a partnership like this for business communities that are either un unrepresented or historically shut out of the industry? Well, I think what's exciting is we're going to show them how to build a business. So we're not just going to put our business on their land. We're actually going to take those folks who are going to own that business. We're going to train them. Uh, we're going to employ a, a pretty large number. In fact, we're, we're very intentional on who we'll be employing, knowing that we'll probably have to train them. We might bring them into our Massachusetts facility where they could you know, learn at the side of some of our cultivators and our packagers and our manufacturers. We'll train the leadership team. So it's really about, um, you know, unlike a lot of the deals you tend to see where MSOs provide advisory services and either ultimately end up owning the entity they provided for at some point or have some lopsided amount of the economics. 
here, you know, about 75% of the free cash flow will go to the nation uh, and helping them run that facility and run it efficiently uh, is definitely what we're looking to do. Now, we'll also bring our brand partnerships in, so what we talked about earlier. So that'll help jumpstart the process. And if wholesale goes the way we all think it will go, uh, that will give us reach throughout New York State, which will just add even more revenue, uh, you know, for the nation. So it's about making it sustainable. Uh, it's about realizing that, yes, are we a little bit vulnerable in the sense that if the contract doesn't get renewed, what happens? Uh, if we're providing value and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, uh, I think contracts tend to work best when that's happening. When one side is unduly enriched and the other side takes all the risk, that's usually where contracts fail. So this is a very uh, you know, interactive partnership. Yeah. And, you know, I want to talk even a little bit more about the partnership, because I think this is like on top of mind for a lot of people, especially, you know, we're talking, you know, a week before Indigenous Peoples Day. What do you believe are the most compelling business opportunities in cannabis for other Indigenous communities, especially considering how tribal lands are governed by their own set of laws? Look, I think this is something that could be replicable. I think it really depends on the land itself. Uh, it depends on how deliberate other uh, other nations might be because they could just do dispensaries. That is certainly one of the things that the Shinnecock were thinking about, put a dispensary on and then purchase third party wholesale products and just resell them. And that's a model that they've used you know, in other industries before. So I don't know that everyone needs to be fully vertically integrated. They certainly can be. Um, but I think, you know, for them, understanding that the closer you can get to mirroring the regulations of the state, the less likely you are going to run into issues there. Because even though you do have sovereign land, you know, I think you don't want to be sort of this standalone, you know, uh, lightning rod because you might have loose regulations or, you know, the products you put out are just random or something like that. So uh, I think it sets the tone for, you know, being able to put kind of deliberate business models together that could be replicated, whether you're, you're vertical, whether you just want to do wholesale. Uh, and then also for the, the tribes themselves to trade amongst themselves. I think that would be fantastic as well. Yeah. And based on this experience and, you know, past uh, social equity partnerships, what are the most impactful ways do you think, you know, other established episodes can provide resources and reinvest in the respective markets? Well, I think, you know, if, if our if our head of uh, if our head of HR were here, uh, who really oversees the implementation of our DEI and CSR programs, he'd tell you that, you know, it's really got to start at the top. Uh, in this industry, a lot of times you have grassroots support and you see local dispensaries doing things uh, very localized within the community. And that's good and that's powerful and important. But to really make a difference, you've got to have the support at the highest level. If if my board doesn't agree that it makes sense to give the kind of economics we're giving to the Shinnecock Nation, the deal doesn't happen. If my board or our shareholders are just hyper focused on having 60, 70, 80 percent gross margins, then this doesn't work. And the reality is we probably shouldn't have 60, 70, 80% gross margins. I think it's great and it's wonderful and it sounds great. I don't think it's sustainable long-term. And I think there's enough economics to be shared around. If the goal is to create sort of the next wave of cannabis entrepreneurs, we've got to lift the whole industry up and stop being so focused on just our own dollars. Uh, and I think that's how we lift the industry. So top-down intentionality, um, you know, make sure that it's a meaningful step you're taking. If you're in an organization, be active in the organization. Don't just check off that you're a member and feel good about it. Uh, you know, if you do that local work, make sure it's powerful. You know, make sure you get involved on the expungement in the last prisoner project. Don't just donate. Uh, I think that's that's really the best way to handle it across the board, whether it's you know another Native American tribe or whether it's any of the other uh, initiatives you hear about throughout the country. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's been uh, so nice to watch, you know, from our view is like watching how the integration is going, 
right? And like uh, combining a businesses or partnerships can also often be challenging no matter how experienced you are. And so I want to talk a little bit, go back a little bit of some of the partnerships you guys have uh, signed throughout the year. Um, you've secured a number of multi-state expansion deals you know, with brands like Old Pal and Arrow, like we discussed. So in your experience, um, what do you think brands and operators should be looking for in each other before signing on, right? You've done a great job of it. Like what are the things, what are those boxes that both parties should be checking before coming into um, a partnership? Well, I think the first one is understand where you are in the in the CPG space. Uh, a lot of times when we talk, uh, have initial conversations with a brand, they all say, I want to be a top brand in a given state within the next 12 months. Well, everybody can't be a top brand. Uh, and do you really need to be? So if you think about Old Pal, right, it's a lifestyle value play. They can own that part of the brand. Now, is that going to make them the top brand in Massachusetts compared to other brands? Hard to say, right? It depends. Will that part of the market become bigger than any other part? So it's it's sort of knowing where you choose to play. And then if you want to own that space, fine, we'll work with you on that level. But it's got to be more than just, I want to be the biggest seller. And I think showing showing them sort of that grid of X number of product, uh, you know, price points, X number of, of quality points, and then the form factors available in a given area and working with them to fill that grid out and not just own like the upper left quadrant. Those are the places where they really have to think. And look, you might just be a niche. When I think about Her Highness, female focused, owned by females. I mean, I love their business model. They've got marketing nailed down. She's um, amazing, by the way. I just absolutely. met her when we were together in New York. Like unbelievable, the attention to detail on everything she's doing. Absolutely. But they're very intentional on where they want to play. Could they take some of their formulations and spread it to a broader population? Absolutely. But they are not confused about who they are and who their brand is. So, you know, I think knowing that as you come into these relationships, even if you don't have a firm handle on how to scale or on supply chain management or the regulations in a given state, that's what we do. We can we can provide all of that, knowing who you are as a brand and making sure you hold that line. That's going to really be what the brands need to do. And that's why we tend to look at either established brands that have stood the test of time in those hyper competitive markets or ones that are at least demonstrating that kind of DNA. Yeah, I, I think that that's super wise. And, you know, um, uh, we talked about a bunch today and, you know, you guys have really like, you know, we signed on with you guys, you know, just as, as you were coming on board. And it's been incredible to see how much you guys have accomplished in, you know, the past year. But what's next for Tilt the next year? We're coming up, you know, towards the, the fourth quarter. And there's only so much we could talk about. Is there anything you're particularly excited about that you guys are working on? Yeah, so uh, we just opened up uh, last week, we opened up our second medical dispensary in Massachusetts. Uh, we just completed the last of our uh, final inspections for adding adult use. Um, so we are hopeful that uh, both our Brockton and Taunton locations, which are now both medical uh, dispensaries, will be able to add adult use before the end of this year. So we're excited to go into 2022 with those two stores fully uh, going. We're also excited to get our Cambridge store open. So, I mean, that even though we're B2B play, we have to have uh, retail and mass. I think what's exciting for us is to be able to share our shelf space in those stores with our brands and also with the other MSOs who buy from us. We are happy to share that space. We're going to run those a little bit different than some of the other MSOs run it. So there'll be that piece. Getting New York up and going, obviously, that's just keeping that on track. I also think there's some great opportunities for Jupiter. Uh, you know, we've had some interesting wins with some MSOs who had previously either left C-Cell and gone to some of the knockoffs or maybe gone to a competing distributor that have come back to work with us. 
uh, because of our supply chain management and our, our working capital. So watching Jupiter continue to grow, uh, I met yesterday with our head of uh, R&D, Augie Fitzpatrick, and he's got about five or six swim lanes of R&D projects on the vaping world that in some cases are just variations on the theme and improving certain products to work with a more, a wider range of, of concentrates and products out there. Um, but then he's got a couple of what we call moonshots that are really transformative and they're further along than I thought. So continuing to, to do the R&D work and maybe see what we can bring to market in terms of innovation and new IP, uh, I think that's that could be very exciting in, in 2022 as well. Yeah, and I can't wait to see that play out. Uh, well, Gary, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great to catch up with you. I'm um, excited to see how all this pans out over the next couple months. Thank you for having me, Rosie. It's a pleasure.